Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. My name is Ira Jersey. I am the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. Today, we're going to be a little meta, and I am going to talk a little bit about our views on the markets going forward. It is now the seventh day of July, 2023. I'm here with Will Hoffman, an associate in the interest rate strategy team here at Bloomberg Intelligence. So let me start by just saying that the payrolls report for the month of July didn't change our opinion uh, as to what the Federal Reserve is going to do and the uh, path of interest rates. Um, What we've seen over the recent past is obviously a somewhat more hawkish Federal Reserve that's nearing the end, but not quite at the end of their hiking cycle. Uh, it does appear that they're going to hike a bit beyond where we thought that they would um, they would ultimately see the peak in, in the Fed funds rate. And in doing so, we're uh, seeing an additional um, flattening of the yield curve in a bear fashion where we now have two-year yields above 5% once again, um, 10-year yields hovering around 4%. So you have basically a, a, a 90 to 110 basis point uh, inversion in the twos tens uh, portion of the yield curve. Uh, the three-month tenure even more inverted than that, uh, just because the, the tenure is likely to be more anchored in our view um, on the expectation that the, at some point the Federal Reserve is going to cut interest rates. Um, the market continues to think uh, that basically six months after the last hike, the Federal Reserve may start cutting rates. And because of that, you're going to continue to have this inverted curve until the Federal Reserve actually starts to cut interest rates pretty aggressively. Um, you know, the when that's going to occur and what is being priced into the 10-year yield was the focus of a note that we put out on, um, on the 6th of July um, discussing the different paths that the 10-year yield might be, uh, might be pricing right now. Um, now, it, it's you know, most likely pricing a consensus scenario that is unlikely to be realized, and that's that the Federal Reserve will start to cut interest rates in 2024. It'll cut slowly get down to about 3% and then hold rates there basically for the better part of a decade. Um, we don't think that that's a realistic possibility. We actually think of both a more dovish and a more hawkish Fed policy path uh, is more likely than that kind of 3% forever uh, consensus that currently exists. We think that that's more the midpoint of, of a more of a bimodal distribution. Um, so my view is, uh, my, my personal view is, is that the Federal Reserve will wait to cut until later in 2024, then cut interest rates very aggressively down toward 2%. And then at some point thereafter, increase interest rates again. We have penciled in five going back up to 5%, but it may be 45 or 4%. It uh, really depends on the economic environment. You know, Five years from now, it's very hard to handicap what that'll be. But we do think that we're going back to a, a, an economic um, an economic environment where we'll have more variability in both the economy and inflation. Um, and as we get the cyclical increases in inflation, you'll see a Federal Reserve that will cyclically raise interest rates. I think that the 2011 to 2019 period was an oddity and that won't be repeated and we'll go back to more of a, uh, a typical you know, seven to 10 year uh, economic cycle environment. So once the Federal Reserve cut, starts cutting interest rates next year and into 2025, 
by 2027 or 2028, they'll be hiking interest rates uh, again. Um, now, obviously, there's a lot of risks to that view. One of the risks is that the Federal Reserve will have to actually cut back down to 1% or zero, um, but they would do that more if there's some kind of exogenous shock uh, that occurs. So I do think that we're more likely to have a, a, a somewhat more volatile environment in terms of policy rates than we've had over the past two decades. Um, you know, with that, the other thing that's been going on is the continuing of quantitative tightening. Uh, we've seen balance sheet runoff continuing by the Fed. Obviously, that would be the first dovish move that the Federal Reserve would make, at least in, in my view, where the Federal Reserve would um, would ultimately stop its uh, its runoff of its balance sheet as the first dovish move, and and uh, prior to that, uh, prior to actually cutting interest rates, um, that doesn't mean that they won't try to go back to a treasury only portfolio. In fact, I do suspect that they'll continue to run off their mortgage portfolio, and I'll let Erica Edelberg, our mortgage strategist, talk more about that in an upcoming episode um, about the relative value and pricing of, of mor the mortgage basis, um, but. What would then happen is there would be additional um, that that runoff of mortgage the mortgage portfolio would end up going back into treasuries and reinvested in treasuries. Um, we uh, the other thing that we've noted is that as a share of the treasury market, the Fed's portfolio usually is between 15 and 20 percent. We're now just slightly over 20 percent, and with the deficit continuing to increase and the Federal Reserve continuing to run off its balance sheet, sometime later this year we'll get back into that kind of normal range of around. 20% of, um, share of uh, Treasury ownership by the Federal Reserve. Um, obviously, the, the debt of the, of the government is much larger than it has been in the past. So as a share of GDP, the Fed's balance sheet might be much larger. Um, but if uh, the, in order to conduct monetary policy, the Federal Reserve has had to have between 15 and 20% of Treasury's outstanding. There's no reason to think that they won't stay in that uh, kind of range again, uh, which does mean that you're going to have a much larger balance sheet than maybe some people um, uh, suspect that they actually need in order to conduct it, but I would disagree with that assessment. And I do think that they'll still need to have upwards of three or four trillion dollars at a minimum um, of treasury securities, if not even a little bit more than that. Um, so with that, I, I am going to turn over here and ask a question of Will Hoffman, who's sitting right next to me. Um, when we talk about um, the Fed's balance sheet um, in the longer term, I was talking about where I saw the, the end point um, in February of next year. Our work has suggested that that's when we reach the minimum level of reserves that's needed to continue to um, to easily have, see the financial markets function and, and the banking sector function. Um, once we reach that point, then the Fed's probably going to stop quantitative tightening. Um, you'll see an uptick in the, in the standing repo facility, um, which has not really been used at all except for the testing. Um, but more recently, and, and people have been talking about the rebuild of the Treasury General account, that's the, the government's checking account that the Federal Reserve operates, um, has been rebuilt since the debt ceiling has been issued. So to talk a little bit about the dynamics, the TGA is being refilled mainly by Treasury bills being issued. Um, talk about how that's affected the other parts of Fed liabilities well. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me, as always. Uh, and as you mentioned, Quantitative tightening is continuing at a clip of between 75 and $80 billion a month split between the Treasury holdings and the mortgage-backed security holdings. Um, and in addition to this new, we've been calling it a deluge of uh, T-bill supply that's hitting the market, that has to be absorbed from somewhere. 
And so what we see when net supply comes out, um, we see a change in the mix to the Federal Reserve's liabilities. So the Treasury General account, the reverse repurchase facility, as well as uh, the reserve balances uh, all sit in the Fed's liability side. And as the TGA climbs, this has to be funded from either the reverse repurchase facility or from bank reserves. And the combination, or I guess the mix of the of decline in both of those is a hotly contested topic. Now, at this current point through the, the month of June, we've been seeing these this bill supply be funded primarily out of the RRP facility as money market funds continue to, I guess, begin to term out their, their holdings uh, and reduce their massive exposure to the Fed's overnight facility. Um, however, in I guess the last week, last two weeks, we've actually seen reserves start to draw down as well. And now we've come to a beta between the two of about 63% of the bill supply has been funded out of reserves, where 34% uh, roughly has come from, from, uh, from bank reserves. And should this continue at this pace or even accelerate later into the year as uh, quantitative tightening really begins to bite, bank reserve balances may hit that lowest comfortable level of reserves that us and the Fed are very aware of, and the Fed even mentioned um, in their meeting minutes that were released just the other day, that there is significant risk to the level of reserves and RRP um, outlook by the end of the year. Uh, and so should this reserve tipping point, as we call it, be hit, as you mentioned, um, there will likely be a, an increase to usage in the Fed standing repo facility. And then as well, later on, the, the Fed may actually have to end their, their passive balance sheet runoff, or at least restructure it. Yeah, it's really interesting, Will, that the mix has been skewed a little bit more toward RRP, which, which in fairness, some strategists had thought it would be. Um, we were more the other, a little bit the other way, more like 60% we thought would come from reserves. So, so, so still we thought a substantial portion of T-bills would be taken down by the 287 funds. Um, one of the reasons why I didn't think that that would necessarily be the case is that T-bills had not been cheap to where the standing repo facility is uh, was uh, was set by the Federal Reserve. Um, so one of the in, in order to keep more reserves, one of the actions that some people have suggested is that the RRP facility rate could be lowered. That would draw more people into um, into T bills and and you know two A seven money funds anyway more into T bills and less into the RRP facility, um, and that would keep reserve balances somewhat higher. So actually having this 63 to, to you know, uh, 36 kind of um, mix is actually good in a way for how quickly reserve balances are going to fall because it's going because reserve balances are going to fall a little bit slower maybe than we originally thought. So, so even though we still have that February call for when the reserve tipping point comes, that is going to be somewhat variable based on what happens in the future. The other thing that we have to remember with this TGA rebuild, and I think this is something that a lot of um, investors have, have neglected to say, is they keep on talking about the trillion dollars or the $1.2 trillion of additional T-bill supply. But keep in mind, a large portion of that T-bill supply is going to go to fund the deficit, not just rebuild the TGA. The TGA will likely reach about $600 billion and stay there, so it still needs to climb another $250 billion or so. Um, 
And once it reaches that $600 billion, if it stays there, then the government is going to use the rest of the T-bills that are going to be issued and actually spend that money. And as they spend that money, that money goes into the economy and ends up actually back in res as reserve balances. So keep in mind the way that that works um, is the, the government uh, issues the debt. That debt is purchased, say, by 2A7 money market mutual funds or by banks or by investors. Um, it goes into the TGA, reserve balances or the RRP facility um, go down. But then when the government spends that money, that money becomes a deposit of whoever they purchased it. So if they use it to, uh, to pay an employee, that it goes into that employee's bank account, becomes a deposit and therefore a reserve, um, at least as a first order effect. Um, or it goes into, say, a, a business account. So it goes into, say, someone... You know, they they buy weapons from Raytheon. It goes into Raytheon's bank account, right? That's that's how that works. And then again, that becomes then a reserve on the other side, at least again as the first order, until the banks use some of those some of their reserves maybe to lend to uh, to others or or make an investment. So anyway, that that's uh, that's kind of how the the liability side of the balance sheet works. We don't think that um, that reserve balances or the RP facility are going to fall, you know, well below a trillion a trillion dollars. Uh, we think the reserve tipping point is around two and a half trillion dollars, just based on our work on some of the largest banks and how much they have. Um, and how much money that they have to uh, uh, have to keep in order to comply with a lot of the Basel regulations. Um, so with that, we'll have a number of uh, a number of notes out in the coming weeks. We'll have some guests on uh, the Macro Matters version of the Fic Focus podcast later on. On behalf of Will Hoffman, I am Ira Jersey. Until next time, be well.